Let's come now to our, our, uh, our time in the Word. And if you'll look, to look with me at the book of Mark. Now, this passage in Mark, I, in the story, uh, Jesus is going to be dismantled physically. He's going to die. He's going to be slowly but surely and relentlessly attacked. I mean, it's, it's brutal. It's, it is not, this is blood sport. This is difficult stuff. And we're going to see Christ has a tremendous grace under pressure, though. <laughs> he is able, under the stress of work, <laughs> under the stress of life and the stress of, of looking death in the face, he is able to collect himself and stand with a wonderful glory and a wonderful clarity and a wonderful immediacy. And we're going to see today, he's now he's going through testing, and a testing that's happening from other religious leaders. And, and these tests that are happening in the last week of his life, before his death and resurrection, these tests uh, add up, and we're going, to, we're going to kind of be in them. I was asking myself, why do you think Mark included tests of Jesus? Uh, I mean, it's a part of the story, but parts of the story are not recorded for us. I mean, they don't include everything. What, what's the intention of recording these, these tests, these provo- provocatory uh, kind of attacks and, and, uh, on Christ by religious leaders? I wonder if it's not, uh, in some way, some level, uh, Mark uh, tacitly agreeing that you and I uh, in a sense, we, we all have in our hearts a desire to test, to, to, to react, to, to, to challenge. I've heard some of you do it. You know, why, God, why is this happening to me? Or why are things so bad? Or we have ways we want to, we want to bring God up on account and ask him to explain himself to us. And so I think the testing of Christ at an existential level, let's put it that way, at the level of who we are is a part of how we act. It's a part of how we process. We want him to explain. And so Christ, you'll see, and I'm going to maintain today, he has this wonderful majesty and patience with with the questioning, with the the relentlessness of it. And today we're going to look at Christ poised between two pitfalls, between a rock and a hard place in the questions. We're going to read the questions. We're going to pray for insight into the questions, and I want to take us, I'm going to take us through the text kind of piece by piece so we understand it, and uh, maybe we can get some insight into it and, uh, and into who Christ is. All right, let's take a look here. Uh, uh, these tests are specifically religious uh, tests, and uh, we'll see one has to do with politics. One is a question of the Christian's role in politics. And the other one is on religion, on religious debate. And these two questions, Christ is going to sail through them, as it were, between Scylla and Charbonus, between a rock and a hard place, between the whirlpool and the cliffs, uh, as, uh, as, it, as it's told to us in the old stories. Let's first read here. Will you respond to me? How does Christ tell us we should listen to his Word. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's read. And I, may, I think I'll punctuate as we're going through here because of the, uh, so you don't get lost. 
He's in the temple, and it says here, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him. This talk. Uh, this is intentional. You'll notice that they have are dealing with the fact that he insulted and interrupted their cash flow in the religious in their in their religious game. He interrupted, remember, with the whips, and he threw the tables up in the temple. Now they have a problem. He is an immediate and persistent threat to how they make their money. And worse than that, he's popular. People like him. So they come to test him and put him in a hard place. This first question is very clever. They, come to him, they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Woo! Ha oh, ha! Brilliant. Very, very clever. Now, of course, they're bringing in questions that they themselves have. How do they begin, by the way? Flattery. Uh, Christ is often flattered in the Bible. A Nicodemus does it. There's different places where people position themselves. We know you're good, hey! And, and, there's this, and it's, uh, it's chilling. To listen, because if they actually believe what they just said, they would be following, right? Like, that's not, it's complete hypocrisy. It's, they've religiously positioned themselves. Now, the test they bring, classic, he can't win. Uh, this, is a this is a question he can't win on. What happens if he says yes? What if he happens and says yes, we should pay taxes? All this popularity goes. I mean, everybody's furious. This tax has been going on since 86 or so. So 86, 06. And so for about uh, over 20, uh, what, 24, 25 years, uh, this is the third year or so, this is actually 27 years, this tax was, in, and everybody hates it. It's an area, it's a whole day's wages, and it's, it is a bitter, it's like a poison pill in the mouth of the, of the Jews. They're angry about it. And so if he says, yes, we should pay taxes, he kind of dives into um, uh, all of the unrest. Does anybody see the indivisible uh, anger, the anger at the, uh, this, this week about uh, the political anger, this new group called Indivisible? And they're, 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 they're encountering uh, politicians wherever they can. They, they're coaching them on how to, how to have a riot, essentially, how to, how to question your uh, question authority. Uh, that's, that's exactly what this is primed to do. If Jesus says that, people are going to they're, they're gonna, they're gonna get very upset. He'll lose all this popularity. They know that. But what if he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes? Then what happens? Then he's an insurrectionist, and they can get rid of him. In fact, if it's a public setting, this is perfect. We can set him up, and if he says, no, he loses he, he will be against the Romans, and we'll call him, we'll have him arrested. If he says yes... He loses his popularity with the people. But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. All right, so actually Jesus, they're doing to Jesus what he just did to them when he asked them about John's authority. And they're, they're not happy about this guy at all. And then he says, why do you put me to the test? Does anybody... We already in worship already covered this. Who talks like that? Who says, do not put me to the test? 
Whose language is that? It's the language of Yahweh, the I am. Do not put me to the test. And Christ, in a, in a beautiful way, and I, I, wouldn't, they, I don't think they don't seem to have heard it, he is saying, I am the Son of God, God. And in fact, your, your questions themselves are impious, and they represent your attempt to test me, to test God. They don't seem to see that, and he asks them to bring him a denarius. Now, um, they, he, he brings it, as some people have pointed out, too. It's kind of funny. Uh, Jesus doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any money on him like this. They seem to have some immediately. They bring to him right away, and um, does anybody know what was on it? Caesar Augustus, a portrait. And the inscription, in fact, is Caesar Augustus, and it says, uh, he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought one. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And it's the word for image, by the way. It's an image word. And on the coins, it talked about Caesar, the divine son of Augustus. Does anybody sense the irony here? And then, and then so as he, as he, and he says, whose inscription is it? And then brilliantly render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Okay, that's the religious group. Then the irreligious wealthy, these are very wealthy, the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. And they come, and we know them, uh, they were, were reputation, they began sometime about around the Maccabees, and that's what, about a couple hundred years before Christ. And uh, they were very popular, very wealthy, and they were skeptics. They were intellectual skeptics. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. This is the only time the Sadducees come up in the book of Mark. Teacher, Moses wrote a law. Moses wrote for us that a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child. The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This was to preserve bloodlines in the Old Testament. There were seven brothers. And so what they do is they're going to pose a hypothetical question. And the idea behind this question is, if there isn't an answer, if there isn't an answer, it points how the resurrection is absurd. The resurrection couldn't exist because the law keeps the resurrection from being true. Because the law can't be obeyed and kept true if there's a resurrection. And there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. It's hypothetical. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring, last of all the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I'm 
I am aching with a need for the Holy Spirit. And we all together are. Father, we need, um, we ask for you to supernaturally make these things clear when they're not clear. Pray you'd help me, Father. I uh, feel very uh, out of it today and very off. And maybe that's the whole point of our enemies' attacks this week. I pray for success together. I'm no wiser than any of these folks. I pray for success together to understand your scriptures. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I've experienced this. I was, I remember, um, remember this when I was in college, that it seems to me, and I want to, we're right out the gate here, that there's something amazing to me that the political questions, how does my faith relate to my politics, and the religious questions, how do I deal with abstract and at times uh, what seem to be uh, um, uh, uh, all sorts of complex debate about the possibility or potential or moral or ethics of the scripture, uh, these, two, uh, these two pitfalls are present and always have been for the church. And it's, it's, uh, it's almost as if to, to say that there's a, there's a uh, like I said, the skill of the target. So there's like a rock in a hard place. And there's two different pitfalls, two different like, positions. It seems you can walk into the dark. And you can walk into error. And you can walk into mistake. And so these two, uh, you see Christ kind of sailing through them. Let's, let's see if we can find, spend some time in these two and see if we can get some wisdom about it. The first, uh, the first thing about the politics, uh, I want you to observe something that I think is kind of invisible about Jesus and invisible to a lot of us, and that's his greatness. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost invisible in the text, but I, I brought your attention to it. Do not, why do you put me to the test? And then he's given the coin, says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. And I don't know if you catch it or not, because I think there's, a, there's an accidental glory to Jesus sometimes that we are not perceptive to. And that is, he is disposing as an eternal king. He, he's literally at that moment, in a sense, as it were, by his comments saying that the legitimacy of Caesar's power rests on him. On him. He literally disposes in that moment. It's, it's almost, you might miss his grandeur, because you might think that he's just engaging in a conversation about the problem of politics and religion, but he isn't. He's presenting himself as the one being put to the test, and he's presenting himself as a king with an everlasting kingdom, greater than the kingdoms of the world. There's something majestic here. Um... I was a, we get caught up in uh, being distracted by the politics of the world and the way they scare us and the way it threatens us. I was at a, I got invited to a, a meeting. It was supposed to be a history lesson about uh, church and politics. It was out in the East Bay. I went to the church. And I'm sitting there. I'm listening to the guy talk. And he slowly starts building an argument about how taxation and the exercise of taxation is a form of, of governmental theft. And as he was building his argument, he had some of the concept of governmental theft, and the government was thieving from us, 
He uh, then presented himself, and he began to present and began to build the idea that God's kingdom is supposed to protect us from theft, and it's antithetical to God's kingdom. And then, I, I couldn't believe this was happening. I remember sitting there in the back, and I'm going, and I'm in a fairly conservative church, and it's a fairly, uh, uh, actually, I know there, if you know what theonomy is, but these are extremely conservative people who want to institute God's biblical law. And I'm sitting there, and I'm in the back of the room going, and then he makes the claim, Christians should morally should not be paying taxes. All right? It's an immoral act for the government to steal our money. And I remember I'm sitting there going, well, that's an old question, isn't it? Haven't we dealt with this one before? Didn't, didn't our Savior dispose? And what happens, and it's kind of a, in a beautiful, and we, and we miss his majesty, as it were. And we miss the casual majesty of the Son, of the Son of God in his greatness. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And he disposes, oh, I don't care if it's Trump, Obama, Putin, I don't care who it is. Um, the, the, presumptive, the presumptive work of the Pharisees, the presumptive position of religious power, is to try to, is to, is, is to judge the powers of this world, isn't it? I mean, that's, and that's why, um, I love Christ's, um, I love his majesty. I want you to see his majesty. And don't be discouraged or dismayed by the kings of this world, the presidents and the politicians, because our Savior is greater. Um, if anybody had a moral case against the ruling government, it was the Jews. Not only was Augustus and Caesar's inscription meant to be, give you an opportunity for worship on the coin, <laughs> proclaiming him to be the son of God. Uh, why wasn't Christ himself offended? He's the son of God, isn't he? Because the claims and the pretensions and the positions and the exercise of authority, however immoral, had, look, there hasn't been many fascists as successful as the Roman Empire. Do you know that? There haven't been many slavers more effective than the Roman Empire. There have not been many, you could abort a child in the Roman Empire until the age of two or three. You could decide Nora Abigail just wasn't matching up and then just get rid of her. Yeah. <laughs> it's a horrible idea. And, it's, and, so, and so there was a presumptive attitude amongst religious people that we, that we ought to take a stand against an a, 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 a irreligious and immoral state. And how can Christ not see that? Because there is no state and there is no government and there is no king who is a threat to the kingship of Christ. And I need to hear that again. Um, there's, going, there's a presumptive attitude right now. That, have you seen the hashtag, not my president? Hashtag, not my president. It doesn't matter if you hate Obama or hate Bush or hate Trump. Or, it doesn't matter. Christ is the king. And these kings operate under his sufferance under his rule. He is the king. And I, I think there's a challenge Christ first gets us before we get mired in political questions to believe he has come to rule.
Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. Now, we can explore that further and what implications it has for a Christian view of religion, but that's not where the kingdom stops. So you can get in this diverted, in this kind of this whirlpool of politics, or you can also get into a religious dead end too. Is anybody uh, religious questions? How many angels? I don't know if there was an entire conference in the Middle Ages, an entire conference that was convened by the church to, de to debate how many angels could stand on the head of a pin. Any takers? Oh, we're glorious for this. And the idea, it, so it, it, if, if indeed we, we're not distracted by, by, by this sort of political game and antithesis of the kingdom, we're distracted by what? Religious games and religious pretensions and religious uh, objections. What's Christ's answer to this? They do not know the word or the power of God. His is a kingdom of power. I want you to miss this. It, all right, so he, he uses an argument. He uses, a, um, he uses a, an argument based upon the, 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 the name of God. Do you guys see, the, see the, what he refers to the bush right there? He refers to the bush. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what is, in fact... In the sacred name of the Tetragrammaton, in the name of God, Yahweh, what is that name, as we translate it again and again in our Old Testament texts here in worship, how do we, how do we translate the name of God? Yahweh. We translate it, the I Am. In that moment of the bush, in the moment where God meets Moses, he, uh, he declares himself to be the I am. And, and Moses asks, what name shall I tell them? Has sent me, says, the I am has sent me. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And Christ is making the appeal of that present tense verb to mean, remember, uh, by the way, by that point in the Old Testament, we're in Exodus 3 at that point, uh, how long have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob been dead? 400 years. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's he implying? They live like he lives. Uh, in a sense, the Sadducees, oh, by the way, there's good speculation that the Sadducees in this religious question and debate that they, present, they presented as they tried to make the argument that, that claims for the resurrection were irrational, that Christ's answer in this text ended their entire movement. <laughs> because we, after, after the New Testament, the Sadducees disappeared. And, and there's good reason to speculate that, 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 he, that he actually gave the, their enemies, the Pharisees, the best answer to their entire theological objection to resurrection. But how does he bring the answer? He brings it by even more aggressively putting before them in that statement the eternal presence of the Son. Because what he's saying is, I, I'm the God of resurrection power. And that is what the word proclaims. And all of a sudden we're taken out of either a political distraction or a religious abstraction. We have a political distraction or a religious abstraction to what? Um, Christ is providing them with a framework for understanding who and what he is to be as the resurrection God. He is the God of now and the eternal, eternal life. 
He is the God who crashes through death and defines us. Marriage will no longer define us in heaven. How will we be defined in heaven? By the presence of the eternal Son. Christ is announcing and he is presenting to them the possibility they will understand he will stand forever as he stands now, eternally as the Son, eternally powerful. He is the I Am, above and beyond time, space, and death. And he stands ready to answer. What happens uh, to the church? She drifts into political distraction as a bid for power. Why? I think I know why. If I were to stand here and tell you that our entire hope and commit us to our home only through prayer and uh, belief in God as the king, it's, it's, it, it, it doesn't sound powerful. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't make you do anything. Does that make sense? Like it doesn't, it's not a political bid for control. It doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't add anything. to The problem the church often has is the pure preaching that Christ died and rose from the dead. And as an object of love or life, and as you put your faith in him, you are transformed. It doesn't give me any leverage. Does that make sense? It doesn't give me any power over you. What does it do? It sets you free. It sets you free, and, and it sets you, it puts you before the power of God. And, and, and so the, the, the church, and, and the church is a community, the evangelical community, and our theology, and pastors, and preachers constantly are getting distracted by a bid for political power, because that's the only way to really find change. But what is it, what, what, what's it a bid for? What's it a bid away from? Trusting in the power of God. Trusting in the power of God. But if we don't have the political distraction, what do we have? A religious abstraction. And these are the delights in theological debate and theological question without the power of the living God. Um, I want you to hear here. Uh, we, we was in our, it was in our worship under, in, in, in Hebrews. And it was, it was the Hebrews passage where it said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. And, and then he says, he keeps talking, and in, and in your translation from the ESV, today is capitalized. Today is capitalized, as long as it is today. And there's an idea, instead of, political, instead of a theological abstraction, where you're not challenged, where you don't have to change, you don't have to believe, where we can simply pose to God more and more questions that we want him to resolve, we can escape, we can avoid, we can stay away from what? Conviction. And a God that requires us to respond now and today. To me, this last one, this, this, uh, this be, being caught up in merely religious definition and religious debate and religious introspection and religious uh, conversation is a way to avoid the I am who is Jesus Christ who towers over death by, resurrection, by re resurrecting from the dead. And so we are robbed. We, need, we know neither the power of God nor what? His scripture. And so we're kind of presented like, it's almost like a... Uh, uh, um, the religious questions uh, become a way for us to to make Jesus into just a, a, a way of solving our sin problem, let's say. 
Why do, why do you come to church and why do, why, why do you enjoy this religious exercise? Because it solves the sin problem you have, right? It kind of solves and palliates and, uh, and uh, removes some of that guilt problem you have, right? And so religion, so when I think about this, this is what I was wrestling with. I wrote, wrote for a long time about this last night. Um, there's, a, there's a certain pernicious pernicious, evil side of religion that I really get why our culture hates it so much. Because religion as religion, as some attempt, palliative attempt to make you feel better, or as some bid for control, or as either an intellectual exercise, or a way for you to throw off some sort of authority you don't like, or the ability to question what's happening around you so you can legitimize your own insurrection, and your own independence and your own hatred of others, or if you use, and, or you lose religion that way in the political world, or you could simply take religion as, as intellectual exercise and this, what use is either one of these? What use are they? They do not bring us to the I am. I don't think it's any mistake that they flatter Jesus in this text. How much of our coming together and our worship is merely flattery and not true submission, heart and soul, to the power of God and his presence? How much of our religion is an attempt to control our world and give some explanatory power to bad things? You see, that's not what religion's function is. It's not the religion of this person and his majesty. It's not the religion of a man claiming to be God, saying that Caesar can ask for what he asks because I have given him permission to. And then say, you guys don't even understand life until you understand I am the I am. They don't, and there's a, I don't think they, they can understand this, this resurrection claim until after the resurrection, really. You can imagine even as they were reading it, they couldn't understand that the invitation was to an eternal God and an eternal love. I mean, the implications here that he is the I am, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he exists, the implication is Christ is saying, I am available now. Today is, is today. The eternal moment is now. I am here now. And I will not be relegated to a political gambit or an intellectual diversion. Which one have you enjoyed? I come to preach to you, Christ. Let's pray. Um, I, Father, we ask to see Jesus. Um, you know, like these men in the ancient world, we have played games with you. We have presented our questions. We have said, hey, sometimes we've used our religion to figure out what we could get away with or what we could maybe politically add some advantage we could press. Or we've taken our religion to be some, some uh, 
some big Tylenol to somehow reduce some of my guilt pain and deal with some of my sin problems and, uh, and make me feel better. We've allowed intellectual diversion and uh, political games to have power in our lives. And all the while, we haven't even recognized or begun to see the majesty of your son. Father, I, I, I think about this. I pray for us as a church. I pray for the church in our time for church in our generation. And uh, we've seen it. We've, we've been a part of it. We've seen it happen around us. It's, it's desperate grasp of, uh, for political sway or to somehow justify ourselves or some desperate attachment we've had to theological propositions and winning our theological debates and never worshiping never falling down before the eternal God, the I Am. My Savior, as we, would you forgive us for battering you with either flattery or questions designed to get ourselves off the hook? And would you bring us again into a knowledge of your joy and your power and your eternal kingdom? I pray for this, Father. I, even as my own, my own kingdom, my own life feels like it, it starts spiraling out of control and falling apart. Fa uh, Father, I pray that you glorify your Son in the understanding of the Bible and understanding of this text. And as we come to uh, your love and as we come to this table, may we have new joy that you are the I Am. You are the living God whose word and power and kingdom will have no end. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night as we trade, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. It's just a few days after this conversation, actually. He took bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. In the same way, he also took a cup of wine, saying, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Um, I'm ashamed to think of how many times I've made this an intellectual debate and not a, not a place of worship. Uh, as we turn to our Father now, um, let's turn to him now with uh, hope in his eternal presence. Um, so he said this, 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 this bread... He said this, body, this bread was his body and, this, and the wine was his blood. And it was instituted as an ongoing ritual for the church afterwards. You might be tempted to think this is merely commemorative, like we're looking back on what Jesus did. That's not where the power of this comes at all. I mean, it has that power to remind you, but that's not what its intention is. His intention was to bring and to make you know that the eternal God is available now as the I am. Christ stands unique in all of history as the eternal son in that the institution which he had put and the faith which we put in him makes, makes there an abiding here. 
There's an abiding power and presence. Greater than political systems. Transcendent of all intellectual inquiry. The presence of the Son. All those who come by faith partake in the living God. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Do you know his power and his word? To that end, I always put up a fence when I say, don't come if you don't know God. Just watch. And especially, I urge you, I plead with you not to come if you think that you're a good person trying to earn your way to God. Then he is not your savior yet. This table is for sinners, for the ruined and the broken. Let's take and eat. Take and drink. The, uh, there's grape juice in these paper cups in the back here. Uh, this is gluten-free, isn't it? I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, it's rice crackers. Yeah, I just put it in my nose. Sorry, I'll put it over here. So nobody will take it. We're going to, we're going to enter a time of chaos and, uh, and some disorganization here. We're going to recite the Nicene Creed together. I ask that you assent to this as true in order to partake of this table. After we've said the Nicene Creed, we will sing a song and have communion <laughs> together. And are you worried about the kids coming down? Okay, Ian wants to go get them? Okay, all right. Uh, so let's stand. And so I ask you, uh, uh, we're going to take, take the bread and the wine back to our seats and celebrate the meal together by faith. Um, let's, re let's do the Nicene Creed together now. Tell me, Christian. Brother and sister, what do you believe? We I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not created, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father. He shall come again with glory, to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.